and let yourself listen in a way that is relaxed, gracious, not trying to remember anything. If there's anything of value, it will be because it strikes something that you already know to be true in a very deep way, that it's a reminder. And the rest of it, you can just let it float on by, like all the rest of the stuff that you're subjected to as you drive and read and watch and go online. You know what I mean. All the extra stuff. So it's a kind of unusual and yet wonderful, compelling thing for us in this culture just to sit still. Because we tend to be um, besieged by tasks and uh, schedules and our lives get more, seem to get more complicated over the years and now we're all electronically wired so you can, you know, be in a cafe or even at a family gathering and everybody's on their device, you know, it's kind of wild. Um, and just to stop and listen and kind of sense our, ourselves being here on this earth in this mysterious human incarnation and feel our bodies interbreathe with the autumn evening air and the bay trees that are there and the aquatic life of the bay all breathing with us. W.S. Merwin, who was our poet, National Poet Laureate a couple of years ago, writes, Little breath, breathe me gently, row me gently, for I am a river I am learning to cross. And there's something about just sitting and listening that allows us to become more present for ourselves, for our bodies, for the unfinished business of the heart that arises when we sit, that wants to get tended, the tears that haven't been shed, the longings, the creativity that wants to be listened to, the people that we love that we forgot to uh, contact or connect with, um, to listen to the turning of the seasons and not miss them. So today's Veterans Day, which was actually started in 1918 as Armistice Day at the end of the war, war to end all wars, or so it was believed the First World War would be that, would that it were true. Um, but it was Armistice Day until the 50s, I think, when under, under Eisenhower it became then uh, celebration of veterans from all kinds of wars. Um, and it was General Dwight David Eisenhower who, on one of his last great speeches, talked about the military-industrial complex and his worries about it, and that every missile that was launched and every tank that was built and every gun that was fired was, as he said, a theft from the children who are uneducated, from the people who are hungry, um, from the future generations of this land. Um, and he said that the world in building more and more weapons in the United States now is and has been the largest weapons exporter on the face of the earth. We sell 
hundreds of billions of dollars of killing machines in order to import our devices and televisions and cars and things like that. And it's a kind of Faustian bargain, really. It is, because we worry then we're not safe, but yet we're selling weapons all over. Something not quite right about that. Um, and, you know, it becomes the usual thing that, oh, this is, we can't touch the defense budget. We're all for the soldiers, right? I'm all for the soldiers, too, especially bringing them home. Um, but, uh, and it's not that I'm saying there shouldn't be an army, but quite judicious, one would hope, to use it. Um, there's this cartoon I saw in the New Yorker. It showed two generals striding down the hall of the Pentagon with all their medals and so forth, one turning to the other saying, um, it, uh, it really frightened me. I dreamed that the meek inherited the earth. <laughs> you know, and there's a way in which we take it for granted that half of our um, tax budget should go to uh, the military and that we spend more on military than the next 10 countries in the world all put together. I mean, it's one thing to be safe, but then it's a little overdone, don't you think? Anyway, so these are some beginning, just a little bit of truth-telling on Veterans Day. Um, because here we are, this wise, in certain ways, intelligent, amazing species, Homo sapiens sapiens, twice wise, right? We know that we know, or we know that we don't know in this case. But we haven't learned how to solve conflicts globally. We have not. I mean, sometimes we do, which is a fabulous thing, but um, much of the time not. Uh, and especially men, I guess have to, I have to say that. Um, men are quite competitive. And uh, I, there was an organization that was started some decades ago that I thought was actually quite interesting called A Better Game Than War. And it was really envisioning what we do with the competitive spirit. And the Olympics were built in that spirit. And, you know, maybe the space race would have been that spirit. Let's go to another, other planets or other parts of the galaxy and so forth. Can we use that energy that we have in less destructive ways? Um, how do we solve conflicts? We look for ways to solve them with one another, sometimes more or less successfully. But it's actually pretty crazy to have whole nations and societies say, well, we can't solve our disagreements, so we're going to arm ourselves and go and bomb and destroy and kill these other people. Now, mindfulness, we just sat and made ourselves quiet, and hopefully in that quieting of the mind and invitation to open the heart could be present for the contradictions of our human life with some graciousness. Because it's not just the outer conflicts that need to be solved, but it's the inner conflicts. My teacher Ajahn Chah called meditation stopping the war. He said, you're at war with so many things. You know, too little of this, too much of that, too hot, too cold you know, too long, too short, they're not acting right, you wish they would do this more and that less, you know what you're at war with, right? All the time, he said, 
why don't you step out of the battle? Why don't you just take a seat on the earth with goodwill and benevolence? And you can feel the inner conflicts and the things you want and don't want and all that, which change, by the way. You were in conflict with some things a few years ago that you're not even in conflict with anymore. It doesn't even matter to you. But there you are in the middle of it, courageously carrying on the battle, he would say. Is there another way? So you stop and you begin to establish the capacity of being present with loving awareness, which is another phrase for mindfulness, witnessing the play of your humanity, the joys and sorrows and longings and loves and imaginations and fears, all of that that you hold, the aging of your body, the you know, falling in love, the falling out of love, you know, all that stuff, right? And mindfulness is this gift, this gateway to presence for the mystery of your life that gives you a capacity to be responsive rather than get caught up, to be present and gracious rather than in conflict as much with yourself. So much self-judgment and self-criticism and shame and guilt. Oh, you know all that stuff inside. Rather than believing that, say, oh, there's the judging mind. Thank you for your opinion. You know, there's guilt. Oh, yeah. I even remember where, where that got installed in the, you know, software, right? You know who programmed that in? Yeah, thank you for that, but no thanks, not today. I think I won't have that delicacy today, right? And so you begin to feel there's a capacity that you have to be wise, to be present even in the midst of inner conflict, and then outer conflict. And mindfulness, of course, has become much more fashionable than I could have imagined when I came back from uh, the monasteries of Thailand and Burma in 40 years ago, 1972. Now there's mindfulness in medicine, in the arts, in business, in education, in athletics. George Mumford, a friend of mine, who was the meditation coach for the Los Angeles Lakers and the Chicago Bulls, right? We'll teach mindfulness to the basketball players. Anyway, and then there's been, in modern neuroscience, um, 3,000 papers written about mindfulness and corollary trainings, and a 1,000 different studies that have been done. The relationship to neuroplasticity that you can, in fact, change that where, whatever you pay attention to changes your nervous system. Even if you're 85 years old and you decide to take up the violin and you begin to practice the violin with some dedication, after a few months, if they do an, F, uh, do an MRI scan of your brain, the parts of your brain that map to the fingers um, that are on the violin, fingering the notes on the strings, will have grown whole new complex sets of neurons and neural connections. You are always teaching your nervous system new things. It's never too late, baby. So <laughs> it's a good thing to know, right? Neuroplasticity. And then with mindfulness, there comes enhanced clarity, increased presence versus mind wandering. You learn how to be more present, the work of Elizabeth Blackburn and Norman Farb. There's greater focus, it works in schools, it improves academic performance. There's a stronger emotional regulation and resiliency, you're better able to approach 
challenges and conflicts. This is Cliff Saron's work at UC Davis, and UCLA also. More access to compassion, um, increased integration and executive function, neural protection, increased improved immune function, more rapid healing, different studies. And then, as we've talked about at other times, people come on retreat and they get the Vipassana facelift. You come for 10 days and you see them at the end and they look, you know, five or 10 years younger, right? It's gorgeous. Okay, all that stuff is very cool, right? Sell you that stuff. But one of the big questions that I've been talking to researchers about and that I hope more of the neuroscience beginning to do turns toward is the question of identity. Because when you begin to become mindful, there is a shift of identity from taking things so personally, this is my thoughts, my opinion, my way of doing it, my body, the way it's supposed to be. If it was really your body, you could tell it what to do, right? Don't eat that. Does it listen, right? You know? Sleep when I want you to, right? And don't think that if it was your mind, but it doesn't, you know? And there is a mysterious quality in consciousness that in Buddhist psychology is called manas. There's a couple of actually of qualities in consciousness that, that take the raw experience that we have of thoughts and feelings and sensations and so forth and create out of them a sense of me and myself. This is who I am, this body, even though your body's always changing. These thoughts, these opinions, this view, this way. Um, and it can get very rigid, the sense of self. But there's a, a little bit of a problem with that. Well, there's a number of problems. Um, let me see if I can find this statement from the Time Magazine issue on neuroscience. It says, after more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there's no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that it simply does not exist. Right? So what we take to be a self is really the re repetition of thought and identity. This is who I am and we repeat it enough and we start to believe it. I mean, pay attention and see if that's not so. It is, you know. And it's useful to have an identity. You need to remember your social security number and zip code and drive, you know, whatever the rules. And it's useful to be able to play a role. If your roles, your, um, the tasks that you've been given and to honor the age that you are or, you know, the ancestry you come from or your gender or all of those things. But it's, it's a drag if you really hold on to them too tightly, your opinions. Nobody likes that, really. I mean, that's the people around you. You know, that's the nobody I meant, you know. Or um, if you feel yourself to be rigid in some way of how you, who you are and so forth, the more rigid you feel, the less flexible, the more trouble you're going to have. Because actually all these things, including your opinions and your views and your body and all those kind of things, they're changing. And so if you hold on, you get what's called rope burn, basically. You suffer because of the holding on, right? And it's not true. What we are is something much more alive and intimately opening and evolving and changing. 
And without it, then we say, this is me, I'm this way, and those people, this is my identity, and we kind of wall ourselves off in some way as if we were separate. And you are separate, sort of, but only, only sort of. You know what I mean? Um, well, we'll get to that in a second. You're only somewhat separate. But you feel yourself to be a certain way, and then those who aren't like you are the other. And this is a very old human story. So, letter to read. Am I gorgeous? My child asks, drawing the word out like pulled taffy. Yes, I say you are. The pink and teal dress probably made of some highly flammable chemist's approximation of satin. Pudgy fingers decorated with pink polish trace the sequins on the bodice. I love this. Giant pair of bubblegum pink wings flap slowly, little feet dance in sparkly red slippers. I'm just like a real princess. Yes, I say you are. Curly hair, joyful smile, flawless skin. This child is the epitome of beauty. This child, my son. He's four years old and prefers to wear dresses. Maybe it's a phase, maybe not. Even as I wonder how I produce such an angelic-looking creature, I wish he would put on some pants and go back to playing with toy tractors, not because it matters to me, it doesn't, but because I'm already hearing in my head the name calling he will face in kindergarten and for years after. Many adults already seem a bit disturbed by the dresses and they apologize when they realize he's not female. This culture wants little boys to dream only of baseball, trucks, trains. This culture has no room for little boys who want to be gorgeous. He picks up a parasol a neighbor gave him and opens it jauntily over his shoulders. Am I beautiful, he asks. And I sweep him into my arms and plant a kiss on his cheeks. Always, I say. And you can hear it and you can hear the, the poignancy in it of somebody being born the way that they are, which we all are, and then encountering a culture of prejudice and bias and homophobia and all of these things. And wait a second, is there something wrong with me? I'm not, am, I, am, I, am I not okay? And all the ways that we limit ourselves with our conditioning. The nice thing about this is that, as you could see from the recent election, this particular um, conditioning and fear in our culture, and I've taught years of men's retreats and really seen how scared men are of one another. They are. You know, there's a kind of homophobia that's built into this culture that if you're in a locker room or a boardroom, it's okay. Well, you know, and if I go to the Middle East or I go to Asia or Latin America, men are holding hands and hanging out together and there isn't that fear of one another. But here it's, it's pretty serious and sad, um, but it's changing. You know, not only the states that changed, that voted for legalizing gay marriage, um, but the demographics that the younger generation doesn't care. <laughs> that it's really the old folks who are still caught in that particular delusion and attachment and so forth. Because our conditioning actually doesn't limit us. Um, and that's the gift of mindfulness. With it, we can see our conditioning, and we can learn through training, 
through awareness a different way. So there's a center at Stanford called C-Care, the Center for the Training of Compassion. It's grown up in the last few years. Some neuroscientists there in conjunction with Tupton Jimpa Rinpoche, who's the main translator for the Dalai Lama, and the Dalai Lama who gave them his blessings and money and so forth. And they've been training people in these courses in compassion around the country and also doing research. And one of the interesting studies was with preschoolers, four-year-olds. And the four-year-olds were given um, a whole bag of stickers. And stickers are a cool thing when you're four years old. And then they were given four envelopes. They were asked who was their favorite friend in the class, or a couple of their favorites. And the picture of their favorite friend was put on one envelope. Who was the kid that they least hung out with? Okay, their least favorite. And then a couple in the middle. And they were asked after a class when the stickers were given to divide the stickers and put whatever they wanted in these four envelopes for these four kids. And mostly they put all the stickers in the envelope for their friend, right? And the other ones maybe a little bit. Then they had an eight-week training in empathy and compassion, which included little practices of imagining what it was like to be that child or wear those clothes or come from that family or whatever. You know, the basic human empathy. And at the end of their eight-week training, they were given another bag of stickers and four envelopes, a picture of somebody they were close to, a picture of somebody that they didn't really have much connection to or didn't like, and some in the middle. And they distributed their stickers quite fairly to all the envelopes because they had learned to empathize, to realize, oh yeah, that this is another kid not so different than me. So it's actually quite hopeful, wouldn't you say? But it's not just that level. It's Mahagosananda, my friend and teacher for, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, who led 15 years of peace walks through the killing fields and the battles in Cambodia in the late 70s and 80s and so forth, telling people that they couldn't go back to their villages by truck or bus or something, that they had to walk back and chant loving-kindness the whole way so that every time they took a step, they reclaimed the earth that had been so uh, so destroyed by the Khmer Rouge, where almost two million people were killed in a small country. Um, that it was only, and so he would lead people through the jungles and the rice paddies, just chanting, "Hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed." Over and over again, and you know, soldiers would come out of the bushes and put their put their guns on the road and bow at his feet. There'd be hundreds of people behind him and they'd all be singing this chant of love, saying, I don't want to fight anymore. Somebody that I know who was in that line with Mahagosananda working with him said a man came, this, this person was ringing a bell that he was ringing with each chant of the loving kindness. And um, the soldier came and said, I, you know, I'm so touched, I don't want to be a soldier. Would you give me the bell so I can remember? And this fellow, this fellow that I know said, uh, I'll give you the bell in exchange for your weapon. And the soldier said, I can't give it to you. You know, if I do when I go back, they'll, they'll, they'd shoot me. He said, all right, I'll give you the bell for all the rounds in the magazine. He dumped them all out, handed him the bullets, and traded for the bell. So it's possible, 
Gosananda, 19 of the 20 people in his family were killed, and his response was, we have to have more love in our country. I'll go do it. And isn't that an amazing thing? Or the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, you all know, which is a kind of an altar. It's really become an amazing place of pilgrimage for people because it's not a monument to war, um, but it's 58,000 names. And you read each one, you know, Jim Connolly, you know, and you realize, oh, Jim Connolly was somebody's brother or someone's son or someone's father. And there still are there letters and flowers and things that are left there. And I have, I have a couple of amazing picture books that were photographs of the offerings that people leave there. Dear Sir, one letter was left with photographs. For 20 years I've carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old the day we faced one another on the trail in Chu Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life first, I'll never know. You stared at me so long, carrying your AK-47, yet you would not fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was just reacting the way I was trained. So many times over the years I've stared at your picture and your daughter in your lap. Each time my guts and heart burn with the pain of guilt, for I have two daughters myself now. I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. And above all, I can respect the importance that life must have held for you. I suppose that is why you didn't shoot and I am here today. It's time for me to continue my life and release my pain and guilt. I offer you this picture. Forgive me, sir. Please forgive me. So it's heartbreak. Imagine carrying this for 20 years. But Richard Littwell, who wrote this, then, I read the story later, <laughs> with a group of other vets, went back to Vietnam. And he brought the picture, which had the uniform and, you know, the insignia and so forth, and went up to Hanoi and found the company, battalion company and so forth, and eventually found the name of who that soldier was and went back to the village and found that young girl and her brother with an interpreter and said, tell her this is the photo I took from her father's wallet the day I shot and killed him and I want to return it to her, asking her forgiveness. And they all burst into tears and later her brother explained that he and his sister believed that their father's spirit had somehow lived on now with Richard and that on that day their father's spirit had come back to bless them. So even though we're crazy as a species and we have ongoing warfare, there's another alternative and we also know that as deeply and you hear that story and it resonates um, as what's possible for us as human beings. Because we have this mysterious predicament in our incarnation. We're separate. And we are, you know, even the little one-celled organisms, they 
move away from danger and they move toward food and so forth, a little paramecium and stuff. And we're the same. Although it seems like we're separate, but actually, you know, the, the recent DNA studies of all the bacteria in your body and stuff show that the majority of weight of your body is actually bacteria. It's not, you know, who you think you are. You're walking bacteria, basically, <laughs> with a little bit of something to hold it together. And the thing is that the whole sense of being separate, you know this. It's not that you aren't separate, you are, but it's only one part of the truth. As Alice Walker writes, one day when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me the feeling of being a part of everything, and I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and cried and run all around the house. In fact, when it happens, you just can't miss it. And so we know this somehow very, very deeply, that we are both separate and that we are profoundly interconnected. With every breath, we're interconnected with the trees and the atmosphere, with every glass of water, with the rain clouds that pull water up from the Pacific Ocean as they come over and fall into Hetch Hetchy Reservoir and in the reservoirs around the Mount Tamalpais. And it's the rain, you know, that also has fish swimming in it. And it's part of you. And you're part of it. And what mindfulness does is it allows you to open yourself quiet the mind, and yes, it's good to have emotional regulation and do better in school and have, you know, greater neuroplasticity changes in your ability to attend and, and all those kinds of things. But it also lets you step back from the doing and getting and movement to witness the mystery of life itself. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the cover story of Newsweek was Heaven is Real from this Harvard neuroscientist. He was a neurosurgeon who had a little conversion experience because he went, um, uh, he had some form of meningitis, I think, and basically, at least according to all the electronics hooked up to him, his brain flatlined and he was gone and there was no brain activity. And of course, all his neurosurgeon friends and everybody were there, you know, trying to keep him alive and noticing that he wasn't there anymore. And they thought, he's gone, maybe he'll never come back. Meanwhile, he floats out of his body, goes into this place of luminosity, sees all these beings, get this great wisdom about life is really about love and that the consciousness is not limited to, by the nervous system. I mean, do you think that your consciousness is a product of this food body, of the broccoli and Big Macs that you eat? Come on. That's a pretty limited materialistic view of things. You'll see. You know, what was that spirit that came into you when you were born? And that will be there when you die? You'll see. You wait. Anyway, we'll talk about that later, right? And it's so mysterious. So he had that experience and he had his out of the body. It wouldn't, I was like, you know, you don't have to get spinal meningitis. Come on a retreat. I'll show you how to do it. It's not that, not that complicated, really. Come on, dude. But the gift of mindfulness, of loving awareness, is that 
it quiets the mind, it makes a sense. It doesn't mean thoughts go away, but we become bigger than thoughts. There's a spaciousness, a clarity, a not taking things quite so personally, an ability to be resilient rather than be reactive, a kind of inner pause that you can take. And you can do it any time. I mean, mindfulness, when you're driving and there you are in traffic and there's a big traffic jam, and you're upset at all those other cars who are the traffic jam, and then you realize that you are the traffic jam. <laughs> They're looking at you the same way. They're saying, I wish you weren't there and get out of my, you know. <laughs> or my friends in Silicon Valley who said that before they press the send button for the email or for the text message or something, they always take two or three breaths and try and sense, all right, what's my best intention? Oh, it's, let me rewrite that a little bit, you know. Because when you pause, you have access to your heart. You have access to a kind of wisdom that's not there when you're, when you're just speedily reacting. Um, and this is also called looking deeply, that to become mindful, yes, you can listen to your heart, that you can look or listen in a deeper way. So Desmond Tutu says, in Africa, when you speak to someone, you ask, how are you? The reply you get is in the plural, even if you're speaking to one person. A man would say, we are well, or we are not well. He himself may be quite well, but his grandmother is not well, so he is not well either. Our humanity is interwoven with one another, the solitary, isolated human being is really a fiction. And so mindfulness allows us to see this and to see that it's not the other. If you read that famous poem by Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, where he says, please call me by my true name, you know, I'm the rain cloud and the bay tree, and I am the little girl on the boat, refugee from Vietnam, and I am also the sea pirate who captures the boat and rapes the girls on the boat. He said, I am all of these. I am the, the jewel hiding in the heart of a stone. I am the butterfly in the chrysalis waiting to be born. My true name is life itself. My true name is life itself that's woven through all things. So in 1492, Columbus discovered the New World for the Europeans anyway. There were a number of people living here who had discovered it hundreds of, or thousands, thousands of years before that, but Columbus dis discovered it for the Europeans. In 1493, the Pope declared the indigenous inhabitants of the New World not to be people, which allowed for a few hundred years of genocide um, robbing of anything of value and so forth. Um, and in 2007, the United Nations, after years of struggle, even in the 1990s about indigenous rights, passed a declaration, the rights of indigenous people. And all of the world's nations signed it except for four. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and guess who? Isn't that astonishing? The rights of indigenous people. Well, they're not people, so you can do what you want, says the Pope. 
I don't know if he ever took that back, but that's his karma. Sorry to say, it's sad. Meanwhile, there's an extraordinary book by Wade Davis, one of our great uh, explorer, anthropologist. He's one of National Geographic's um, Universal Fellows called The Wayfinders. And part of the tale in The Wayfinders, many, many great things, is his description of going out with Nainoa Thompson, um, who is a... uh, who is the first modern Hawaiian Polynesian um, navigator. He, um, he went to the South Seas to Palau or somewhere way in the far southwest of the South Seas and found one of the handfuls of living navigators um, to train him in what it was like to take these ocean voyage-going canoes, the double-held canoes that the Polynesians used to go from island to island and to settle the whole of the Pacific. And Mao, his teacher, a friend of mine who knows Mao, gave me a feather from Mao, which I treasure. But anyway, Mao, who was, his teacher was one of the, one of the few remaining living navigators. And he taught him to feel the five waves, not just the surface wave, but the waves so deep in the ocean that you could feel them bouncing off an island that was, you know, 400 miles in that direction. He actually had uh, Nainoa tie his testicles to the bottom of the boat for 24 hours so he'd get a feel for the waves as part of his training. Um, Serious training. Um, But Nainoa, who then became the navigator, he's now trained a, a several generations of new navigators, took this first great Polynesian boat that they built in Hawaii um, on a voyage to all the major islands of the Pacific. And each time it came, there was this huge, uproarious, wonderful welcome of, oh, we're back again. And there, you know, he tells the story of going out in these great storms. And they learn to read the stars. They learn to read what's floating on the water. They learn to read you know, what the taste of the water is, and um, all these different signs. And, and in several centuries before, Captain James Cook, arguably, arguably the finest navigator in the history of the Royal Navy, after he landed in Hawaii, where his flagship was met by a flotilla of 3,000 native canoes, went on to Tonga. <clears throat> And he encountered there um, folks in the South Pacific who who spoke similar languages. And he made a priest there who was a navigator who drew for him a map from memory of every major island group in Polynesia. More than 120 stones were placed in the sand, each a symbol of an island across a span of more than 4,000 kilometers. And then they took him on the boat, and to his astonishment, Cook reported that the navigator was able to indicate at every moment of the voyage the precise direction back to his home island, even though he had neither sextant nor any modern instruments. He knew where he was. It's really a beautiful tale of what it's like in the the best part, the denouement comes when their boat is in this incredible storm, and they're trying to go to Easter Island, which is the 
farthest, uh, most remote island in the Pacific. Rapa Nui is its native name. And they go through the doldrums and across the equator and they're in this terrible storm. And then the navigator who sits like a monk or a nun in the back of the boat and doesn't speak to anyone for most of the voyage and keeps track of time and doesn't quite sleep but goes into a half-sleep state so they can remember where they are the whole voyage. And I know I fell asleep and woke up and it was dark and storming and he had no idea where they were and he didn't want to tell anybody. <laughs> and then he remembered he remembered that his teacher, Mao, said that <clears throat> when you're voyaging, that your boat becomes the center of the world. And if you want to know <clears throat> how to get where you are going, you have to be fully and completely where you are. And then in the place that you are, <clears throat> you draw with your vision or your imagination that destination to you, to the center of the world. And so Nainoa sat there, frightened to tell anyone that he didn't remember, he couldn't tell where he was, <clears throat> and felt himself to be in the center of the world. And at that moment, the clouds parted and there was a bright ray of moonlight casting off in the distance and he could see the peak of this distant island. And his teacher Mao said that when you get silent and you know that you're the center of the universe <clears throat> or the world, then you can pull the islands out of the ocean. So he did. So here we are, the Pope saying indigenous, peop indigenous folks are not people. And then <clears throat> Captain Cook finding the level of attunement and wisdom and understanding. So we can make people the other out of racism and tribalism and so forth. It's very primitive, you know, it's the reptilian brain basically. <clears throat> you know, we get afraid of those people who look different or speak different or in a cave down the little ways from us and they're going to come and take everything and, and so all of our security apparatus gets activated. That little book, Children's Letters to God, is one letter. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not fight so much if they had their own rooms. It works for me and my brother. <laughs> Sincerely, Jerry, you know. <clears throat> so it's kind of built into us in some way that we have this, right? But as you could hear from the experiment with the four-year-olds in stickers, that it's possible for us to learn another way. Um, I met a man this last year who I've started to do some work with named Arturo Bihar, who works for Facebook. And <clears throat> his job at Facebook, he was, he was the chief technical engineer for a while, but because he in charge of, he's one of their... Um, vice presidents, I think, or at, at, at that level anyway, because his job was to kind of tend the Facebook site, um, he also became de facto the complaints department. Um, and so if people had problems with 
the electronic, with the software and the way things were going and using Facebook, it would come to him and he'd have his engineers tend to that. But as he said, because we have at that time 900 million users, it didn't take long to get a million complaints. The engineers, he said, were very good with the complaints, right? That's what engineers do. It's broken. Figure out what's wrong and fix it. But he said the majority of complaints were actually conflict. I don't like that picture you put up of me. I don't look good in it, you know, or how dare you put a picture of my children or, or why did you post that and, and so forth. So at first he sent out the company policy, you know, if it's lewd or lascivious or, or if it's um, pirated or something, then we will take it down, otherwise not. But then he realized, you know, I, that's not a very good response. Maybe there's some better thing to do. So he said, he realized that people actually needed to talk to each other. A radical thing, you know, like in kindergarten, don't whack them with a block, use your words, right? So <laughs> he sent them all messages that said, why don't you send a message to the person who posted that picture um, and let them know that it, that it was something that bothered you? But then he said, well, maybe it would help if they would tell them actually how they felt. So he tried that, but then he discovered that people don't know how they feel. Right. I got disappointed, I was upset, I was afraid, I was angry, I was hurt, whatever. So he made those little smiley faces. Okay, here's a little, you know, maybe you felt this way or that way to help them figure out what they felt. He said, but not only that, he said, then I realized that maybe they should inquire so that it was two-way, what made you post that picture? You know, and very often the response is, well, I thought you looked good in it, you know, or um, I thought you'd be proud to see your child or whatever. They, they had a very different motivation for doing it that was imagined, you know. Um, uh, so what was your intention in doing that? And after a while he said he realized I have the chance to begin to teach emotional intelligence and conflict resolution skills to 900 million people. <laughs> and we're doing a project together for the returning vets because there's 2.2, 2.3 2 million veterans coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, millions of people with a lot of trauma, you know, because you're over there and you don't know who's going to be a suicide bomber. You don't know who is dangerous to you. And so you're on alert all the time. Often you're very young, you know, and you have these heavy weapons in your hand. You don't know even who you're supposed to be shooting at. Um, and then people do multiple deployments. So it's Facebook. Most of them are on Facebook, um, young folks coming back. So it's to get some of the best trauma work, some of the best other kinds of resources together for vets coming back. Um, and to teach practices that can actually be helpful to those who come back. Because my friend Michael Mead, with whom I work, has been doing retreats for veterans now. And I've been a little bit, little part of it, but he's really been um, doing it now in a number of places. And the retreats that he leads get vets, especially combat vets, to come and spend a week together. They make a, a, a place that feels honorable and respectful and safe for both men and women to tell their stories. Because what happens is that people come back and they say, I can't tell you what I saw. It's like people can't understand 
how terrible it was. If you've never been in war, it's just almost unspeakable. The kind of images and the things that you carry and the things that you've seen. And then, as I've said in here often, it's not just that I can't tell you what I saw, but I can't tell you what I did. And so people in this very safe container are finally allowed to give voice to what they carry on their souls. And the conclusion of it is to have a big room like this with family and friends and community come and they stand up and read a story or recite a poem or tell something that they've never told anyone that they need to say and they become welcome back as, as a whole person, not hidden in some way into their community. Um, in the, the last retreat I was part of the coming back ceremony, there were a number of women who were vets who were coming back combat, or vets who'd been in Afghanistan and dangerous places in Iraq. Um, and here's the heartbreak. Not only did they suffer the things that happened there to them, but they were also raped by their fellow soldiers. And often they had history. I mean, part of what got them in the military in certain cases was history of abuse of that kind. So it was like layered. And when it came out, it was the story, it was the whole toxic trauma that, need, that they'd never told anybody. Um, and it was both... Um, It was really hard to hear. It was really hard to hear and really important to hear at the same time because it saves people's lives. You can't carry that stuff and not tell anyone and really be, be alive, you know, in some way or other. Um, and what the practice that we're doing here somehow to connect it with it, for me anyway, is learning, like those little four-year-olds, learning how to hold the ocean of tears that's part of your humanity, the betrayals that's happened to you, the suffering that you have to bear, the fears that you have of somebody who's different, you know, whoever that happens to be, and how to hold that, not with the reptilian brain, but somehow <clears throat> with the great heart of compassion, you know. Ananda, who was the most beloved monk in the time of the Buddha, attendant to the Buddha, was sent on a mission to a distant village. And on his way back, in the heat of the day, was thirsty. He passed a well and asked Pakati, this young woman who was an outcast, in India, the lowest caste, whose life is such if you're an outcast, um, you dare not even let your shadow pass over the, the food or the clothing of a high caste person or it poisons it. You can imagine being a little kid and being born into some caste or group where it said, even your shadow will poison the other people. And he asked her, would she please draw him water to drink. Monks are allowed to ask for water, nothing else. And she said, oh monk, I'm too lowly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask anything for me, lest I contaminate your holiness. 
for I am of the lowest caste. And Ananda looked back and said, I ask not for caste, but for water. And her heart leapt joyfully and she gave him the cup of water. And he thanked her and went away. But she followed him at a distance. And then learning that he was a disciple of the Buddha, then went later and said, let me live in a place where I might see and learn from your disciple Ananda and minister him because I've come to love him. And the Buddha, understanding the emotions of her heart, said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you've seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And though you are born of what is called low caste, you will be a model for the noble women and noble men of this world. Follow the path of justice and kindness and you will outshine the royal glory of kings and queens. And so there's a kind of invitation that comes to us when we sit and quiet ourselves and listen that is both immensely practical and at the same time enormously liberating. It's the invitation when Nelson Mandela walked out of 27 years of Robben Island prison with such generosity and forgiveness and magnanimity and graciousness when Aung San Suu Kyi, who was recently here in San Francisco, came out of 17 years of house arrest with loving kindness for those who imprisoned her. Um, um, Who you are is not defined by history or circumstances. You carry your traumas and they need to be healed. It's not that you ignore them or skip over them. But no one can steal your spirit. They can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. And the gift of mindfulness is to return to that place of wisdom, of your own spirit that is inviolable, unshakable, compassionate, beautiful. And it allows you both a vast perspective and an intimate one at the same time. And this is possible for you. And one of my favorite lines in the old Buddhist teachings, the Buddha says, if it were not possible to awaken, to live both wakefully and with the great heart of compassion, I would not teach you to do so. But just because it is possible, it is your birthright to live wakefully, to live with great compassion. So I offer these practices and teachings that have benefited me for your benefit and the benefit of others. It's possible for you. And it's a magnificent possibility. So one more story, and then we'll go out into the autumn evening. Um, And if you know any vets coming back, um, spend time with them, listen to them, hang out with them, do what you can. It's really important. All these people, and they were mostly very young, sent there and had no idea 
So this is a story that was written, true story, by Barbara Kingsolver about a group of people that live in the northern parts of Iran. That's one of our enemies de jour right now, along with Pakistan. Um, and um, they were up in the mountains tending their herds at the end of the summer, the beginning of the fall, getting ready to go back. And they give the children uh, the job of tending to the really little ones. So one, you know, 10-year-old girl was out there looking after the little ones. And then she comes running back saying, I can't find this one little boy. I was watching after these others. I had six kids and he's disappeared. I can't find him. Help me. And a bunch of adults go and they look all over and they can't find him. And then he must be hiding. And they look behind the rocks and in the trees and they go back in the village. Did he go back into his tent? Is he hidden under something? They look everywhere and they start to get more and more afraid and it's dark and they can't find him. And the next day they go out and they look further and his parents are really upset because he's not that old. He's less than two years old. He can't, you know, he's not that strong a person yet, can't walk that well. And then all of a sudden somebody said, well, they'd seen signs of a bear. And everybody says, oh no, a bear, because it's, you know, autumn. And it's scary. And um, Finally they decide on the third day they're going to go up and look in the caves and the hills. How could he walk that far? Well, you know, but we can't find him. And so a party of the men go up through the trees and up to where the limestone caves are to look under the live oaks and uh, one cave to another the mouth of the fourth or fifth cave somewhere, they hear a voice, a cry, like a child. They look in the darkness and ominously they smell bear, but the boy is in there crying too. And they can look in the half light of the cave and see, and what they see in next to the stone is the animal, a dark, thick furred, round shape, a she-bear lying against the wall and they see the child there and the bear curled up around him. And they go, what can we do? And they start to figure out, they make all kinds of noises. They do to scare the bear out of the cave as best they can, fire, whatever. And they run and they grab the child. And she said, I've gone back and read the news sources that were in Farsi and I just want to assure you, this is not a mistake or a hoax. It happened. The baby was found with the bear in the den. He was alive, unscarred, perfectly well after three days, and well-fed, smelling of milk. The bear was nursing the child. What does this mean? How is it possible that a huge, hungry bear would take a pitifully small, delicate human child to her breast rather than tear him into food? But she was a mammal, a mother. She was lactating, so she must have had young of her own somewhere, maybe who had died. So she was driven by the pure quality of maternity to take this small, warm neonate to her belly and hold him there gently. You could read this story and declare impossible, even though many witnesses swear that it's true. Or you could read this story and think, 
how warm lives are drawn to one another in cold places, and think of the unconquerable force of a mother's love, the fact of the DNA code that we share in its great majority with all the other mammals. You could think of all that and say, of course the bear nursed the baby. He was crying from hunger. She had milk, small wonder. So I think there's hope for us. And um, I feel grateful that we can practice together in the way that we do, just quieting and listening and reflecting, because there's some beauty in the human spirit that at this time in the world is really being called upon. So let's sit for a moment. And for just a moment, reflect on a conflict in your life. I'm sure you have one. And as you pick a conflict and reflect on it for a moment, then also in the quiet, ask yourself, what is your best intention? What's your highest intention in approaching this conflict? and let your heart answer. So hopefully you can sense that meditation isn't so much about having some special state or experience, but more a deep listening, a deep attention, an attention with the heart as well as the mind. Thank you for your kind attention, for your support. Um, Drive politely out there. It's dark and crowded. And um, see you next week.